Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives, a signature series by the Conference Board. CEO Perspectives are conversations that take an objective, nonpartisan look at a range of subjects that matter most to business leaders. I'm Steve Odlin from the Conference Board and the host of this series, and in today's conversation, we're going to discuss the state of the global economy. First, we're going to look at the newly released data on consumer confidence in the United States. Then we're going to dig into the economic outlook for China, Europe, and the U.S. You are listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board. Joining me today is my partner, Dana Peterson, the Chief Economist at the Conference Board. Dana, welcome. Thanks, Steve. It's always great to be here. All right. So how were consumers feeling in April? Well, Steve, consumers were feeling a little bit less optimistic in April. Certainly the overall measure had been moving back and forth for many months, but it ticked down again in March, in April. Yeah, so this this consumer confidence series has been bouncing around a lot over the past year, and it's really hard to determine what's really going on in consumers' minds. Well, I think it's important to look at the two pieces, the two components, and that's the present situation versus expectations. And consumers are telling us very different things regarding the current situation and what they expect over the next six months. And that's what's, you kind of have this war between those two measures, and that's why we're seeing so much volatility in the overall measure. So what are they thinking about their current situation? They feel good or not? Well, consumers still feel pretty good, and we think a lot of that is because most of them are working. Even though we're hearing about layoffs in the news, we're still seeing net increases in jobs uh, month after month, and indeed many industries are still hiring. Yeah, so it, the, the people's attitudes or feelings about their jobs affect how they're rating the, the situation currently. Now, a little bit different um, perspective on the next six months, right? Right, and I would also add in terms of the current situation, inflation is a lot lower, especially for gasoline, and people, even though we don't have inflation in our headline, we do ask about inflation expectations. And we know that in general, when gasoline prices come off, people feel better. But with expectations, consumers are are pretty dour on the outlook. And they have been in terms of the index itself. It's been below 80, which is a threshold for thinking there's going to be a recession over the next six to 12 months for 13 out of the last 14 months. So that's been sliding down, and it and it took another step down in in the past month. So that says that people are are thinking, all right, I'm feeling kind of okay with where we are, but it's going to get worse. Yes, that's what they are thinking. Yeah, and so they must be thinking that you know the the interest rates rising will have an effect on jobs and so forth, and that at some point it's going to catch up and affect them. Indeed, and actually, this is all part of the plan. The Fed raised interest rates to address inflation, and so that definitely brought down demand for goods and also for housing, anything you need to to finance. But services are still really strong. But if people think they might get let go, then they'll probably stop spending on services, especially those discretionary types of services. So did you see any differentiation um, in the results by either age group or income? Yes, so it's interesting. In April, many of the people who were less optimistic were under 55. So these are the people who were less likely to be retiring anytime soon. And so they they were the most concerned about 
everything going on in the economy in general, and also people who make more than uh, $50,000 a year. So that's, you know, pretty solidly, we're looking at the middle class there and also upper middle class and probably some really wealthy people in there too. But those two groups definitely were more concerned. Isn't that kind of counterintuitive though? I mean, you would expect people who are poorer to be more worried about job loss and about uh, you know eroding real wages and that sort of thing. Why is it more worrisome for the upper income groups? Well, it's interesting when we look at the industries that are still hiring, many of those industries are offering higher wages, right? And those industries include those experiential or in-person services or things, you know, companies where you have to show up to work like um, retail, but also healthcare and um, hotels and restaurants and airlines. And so we've seen data from the Atlanta Fed that shows the people who have seen the biggest wage gains have been people on the lower income end of the spectrum. And also not including, uh, if we also include the fact that we've seen minimum wage increases across many, many states. So that may be the case for why people with lower incomes are a little bit happier because they have a little bit more money. So does that suggest that the labor shortages are more concentrated in the service sectors? Absolutely. That's where we are seeing most of the labor shortages and also in the government sector because in the government sector, yes, that is a service, but it's much more difficult for state and local governments to raise wages to attract workers. Okay, so if they're, if the consumers are more dour about the next six months, and, and you said it's below the threshold of 80, it suggests that they think we're going into, the U.S. is going into a recession coming towards the end of this year. Well, yes, or even starting now, because indeed okay. it's been below 80 starting 13 months ago. Okay, so, <laughs> so from their perspective, we may actually be in it. What, what is your forecast for a recession? Our forecast is that the recession may be starting right about now. Okay. And that's reflecting what we're hearing from consumers, what we've been hearing from CEOs over the last year, and also from our leading indicators index, which, by the way, has been negative and signaling recession for more than a year now. Yeah, but this recession is, you know, that you're forecasting is different. Well, and, you know, as you've said over and over again, every recession is different. I mean, we're not in a banking crisis, you know, da-da-da-da-da, we're not in a war. This one is mostly because inflation was high because of all the factors we've talked about, shortages um, and demand. And, you know, it's really the central bank trying to tamp down that inflation. Exactly. I'd like to, if you think about skydiving, you're not just falling out of the plane. It's a controlled descent. And that is what the Fed is trying to affect by raising interest rates to cause demand to slowly but surely decline such that inflation also declines. Because if you're a business and no one's walking into your doors and buying your good or service, you're going to start discounting. And that's what brings down inflation. I sure hope we have a para, uh, parachute on the way out here. But you, you, you are saying it's going to be relatively minor as, as they try to dial the inflation down here. I mean, it's natural, right? Yes. And there should be job losses associated with that. Indeed, there will be, but not as many as we've seen in the last two recession uh, episodes. Yeah. And so how are consumers thinking about you? We talked a little bit about services. What are you seeing on the good side? On the good side, consumers are continuing to say that they're going to purchase fewer goods, 
fewer big ticket items like autos and appliances and lawnmowers and carpeting, furniture. Again, many of these things are very expensive and consumers need to finance it. And since interest rates have risen, the Fed funds rate has risen by five percentage points, that makes financing that much more difficult. Consumers are also saying that they're less likely to purchase a home. And we've already seen housing activity basically weaken and decline. Um, the interesting thing that is that even though prices have come off dramatically, they're still slightly above 2019, but there's still very little demand for purchasing homes, either new or existing, or even building anything new. Yeah, but you know, you've been talking about a housing shortage for a long time, so that's not that's all bad to have a little bit of demand slack. Well, the, the, the problem is, well, yes, Yes, but the thing is that this isn't going to go away, right? <laughs> Once we're beyond this recession, you have roughly 73 million millennials turning 40. And around 35, 40-ish, that's when a lot of people start having families and decide, I'm going to buy a house now. But there's not enough supply. And so even though we're getting a bit of a respite in terms of the intensity of what we're seeing in the housing market, it's just going to reemerge. Are, are you serious? Millennials are turning 40. I, I just remember when they were turning 20. Yes, they are. In fact, my little brother is a millennial and he just turned 40. Oh, my word. <laughs> and they said it wouldn't going to happen to their generation. Well, OK, so the big the big kahuna here is inflation. The Fed's trying to tap it down. What are your projections for what will happen? Sure. Well, inflation will cool off. And indeed, when we look at inflation gauges, consumer inflation, um, they have overall. And we kind of peaked last year in the second quarter, and those measures have moved down. But it's mainly because gasoline does not cost as much. If you pull out gasoline, and food prices are also rising, but if you pulled out food and gasoline, which we call core inflation, that is sticky. It's not going down. And that's a problem. And that's why the Fed has been raising interest rates and may continue to raise rates one or two more times. Yeah, one or two more times. But you know, some people say, if that doesn't get it down below, you know, in the two to three percent range, maybe it'll be more. Potentially, the thing about monetary policy is that there are lags, and depending upon the aspect of the economy, the lag is different. So mm -hmm. the lag is really short in the housing market, and and we've seen that. And then businesses also tend to respond after that, right? Because businesses are very forward looking and if they get a sense that there's a recession coming, they're going to start pulling back on investments. Um, some of them may even start pulling back on hiring or let people go. And in terms of consumer spending, durables go first and then services follow. So it's really the key thing is getting services consumption to start shrinking. And again, if people think they might get let go, even though most of them won't, that should help bring down services. Yeah, and consumers are, are such a big part of our economy that this is, you know, that that's why we put so much time and attention to the Consumer Confidence Index because it's 70% of our economy. It's less in other economies around the world. Yes, it's very big in the U.S. Yeah. You know, the other thing is this, uh, you know, small businesses are the primary employer. We don't think of it that way because we have to think of these big businesses, you know, who employ 100,000 people. But but in the country, it's small businesses. Those, those businesses don't finance 
their companies through stock issuance and debt issuance. They, they largely use credit cards or they do a little line of credit. Now that cost of borrowing has really skyrocketed. So you've got that dimension as well. Absolutely, and on top of that, you have the banking crisis. And what's happening is that deposits are actually leaving small banks. Meanwhile, small banks are borrowing from the Fed to stay afloat and to remain liquid. So if, if you're borrowing money from Peter, right, would you be willing to lend money to Paul? Yeah. No, so that's what's happening. Many well, I've small, had a problem with Paul for a long time. Well, but <laughs> Many small and medium-sized businesses have relationships with small and medium-sized banks, yeah. and those banks are less willing to issue lending. So my thoughts are that this is going to impact all businesses, but especially small, small businesses. businesses. And that's where the big employment is. And so, you, you know, and, and some of those small businesses start to act like consumers. So this is all tied in here, and it's gonna be, you know, I think the pain is probably on the small end of the business side, businesses rather than the large end. All right, let's just shift now to our your global economic update. You do you you uh, forecast uh, all the economic measures by country around the world. I mean, you have an amazing model here. Why don't you just talk about some of the headlines? Sure. So the big headline is that global growth is going to be slower this year than last year. So last year we grew the global economy grew by three point three percent. This year, it's going to be closer to 2.2, 2.3%. So an entire one percentage point slower. And that's because you're going to have slower growth, not only in the US, but in Europe and many parts of Latin America. Meanwhile, the biggest drivers of growth are going to be Asia, in particular, China, India, and some of the small ASEAN economies. But even still, their growth rates are going to be muted compared to what they were used to before the pandemic. And, and so talk about China in particular, because that, China now is the second largest economy in the world, and they're still growing at a pretty good clip. Yes, they are, but 5% is materially lower than, say, 8%, or even double digits. And some of that's because China is becoming more of a, closer to being a mature economy than an emerging market. And as economies age and you shift into different um, modes of, of being and operating, your growth rate tends to slow. But China is still recovering from the pandemic. Indeed, last year, China was closed. Uh, consumers uh, were not allowed to go out and spend on services. Now that uh, the lockdowns are over, people feel more comfortable going out, consumers are still constrained. Why? Because there's been this massive housing crisis and for consumers in China, their biggest form of wealth is in real estate and housing. So they've lost a lot of wealth. And so they're rebuilding that wealth through savings, precautionary savings. And also their confidence is pretty low. So if you're not willing to spend and you don't feel like spending, you're not going to have a lot of spending. So that's, that's a big reason why growth in China, even at 5%, is pretty... Uh, weak for well, that economy. Well, the other thing you said, which is, you know, which is we got to always remind ourselves, they were shut down. I mean, that, that was their zero COVID policy. And so there were no services. You couldn't, you exactly. couldn't go get your haircut. So, so now that they're opening up, the, I would uh, expect the majority of that 5% growth to be in services, right? Well, yes, a big chunk of it is going to be in services, but still it's not going to be as robust as we saw, say, in the United States, okay. right? Because in the U.S., you didn't have a housing crisis. You had a slowdown, but it was just, 
just letting off a lot of steam. But this was, you know, a collapse in China and people lost a ton of wealth. Okay, but that means that the demand for goods is going to be even lower. I mean, the growth in goods versus services. Potentially, uh, even, yes. Yeah, okay. So any limitations? I mean, so what are the natural um, limiters around China's growth? Well, the interesting thing is when we look at not only growth this year, but over the next decade, yes, in terms of contributors to global GDP, it will be China, India, ASEAN economies. But China is going to be limited by its demographic issues. Unlike many other emerging markets that have much younger um, economies in terms of age, China is aging just as quickly at faster than even Europe or the United States. And that comes from years of various policies that restricted the number of, of births. And so China is going to be aging, and, and they're aging before they even got rich, right? Unlike the US and Europe, rich economies. So that's going to be a huge drag on growth, the fact that the labor contribution to GDP is going to be shrinking for China as their baby boomers retire. Some some of our listeners may not remember, but there was a one-child policy. You were only that was the policy I was referring to. I yeah. just didn't, you know. But I mean, so but that's okay. And so China has had this has always been the biggest pop. I mean, they're a big country, but the biggest population ever. Now Did I hear India. recently that India has surpassed? Now it? it's India. It, this may actually be the decade for India. Um, I know Laurie Murray's talked a lot about this. India has the biggest population. That population is very well educated and also very much focused on the service economy as well as agriculture um, and, and, and textiles, things that people need. You need food um, and we like services, especially high tech services. Things that are going to still weigh on India is the fact that um, they still don't have the best infrastructure. Hmm you know, in terms of roads and airports and all those things. And you still also have a tremendous share of the population that's very poor. So those are going to be challenges for India. But nonetheless, India does have a lot of potential to grow. Yeah, and they also have this, the culture around the mom and pop retail and because they, they, they really like these tiny businesses and it's been kind of a mainstay of their culture. So they don't like the you know, big retailers coming in and taking over. And, and, you know, that drives a different level of growth. It does. Yeah. Let's, um, let's shift to Europe. Uh, you know, Europe is mostly developed. You have, uh, you know, you have some less developed areas, but, uh, but you're seeing a couple of areas where we're going to see recession there. Yes, most likely in the UK and Germany. Why is that? Well, the UK is still suffering the consequences of, of Brexit. And so, and on top of that, you have very high inflation in the UK, so that's causing a cost of living crisis. And some of that is linked to, a lot of it is linked to the war in Ukraine um, and um, limitations on imports of energy from, from Russia. And so that's a big reason for why the UK is going into recession. And the UK is also suffering from labor shortages that are starting to push up wages. We're definitely seeing that. Um, Germany, because Germany is a giant manufacturer. <laughs> and right now, consumers globally are less interested in goods. They're more interested in services. So that's a huge hit. Also, Germany is very, its economy is very much linked to China. And so if Chinese consumers aren't consuming 
as much as you might hope, then that's going to negatively impact Germany and its manufacturing. And also, let's not forget the energy piece, where these factories need energy. And energy is just so expensive because of, number one, sanctions linked to the war in Ukraine, and also because OPEC has decided that it's going to reduce its output, although Nigeria has come in and said it's going to increase its output. So that's going to offset some of that. But less supply, same demand, or even slightly less demand, but still less supply, that means higher prices. Higher prices. And they were a little bit more reliant on Russian energy yes, than gas, other yes. places. Okay, so you've talked about the potential for stagflation in Europe. Why? Yeah, so stagflation is, you know, it's, we, th we throw that around, there's no measure for it, but essentially it's very weak growth or even negative growth, but high inflation. And that's what we're expecting uh, for Europe this year, growth barely above 0% uh, year on year. And yet inflation is extremely elevated and it's going to take time for the actions that the central banks around Europe have implemented in terms of higher interest rates to play out in the economy, again, because you have lags. Yeah, and for you know our listeners in the U.S., last time the U.S. experienced stagflation was the late 70s, early 80s, and it isn't fun. No, it's not. Yeah, because you just feel like you're in you know quicksand. You can't, you just can't get things going from a growth perspective, and you know inflation is still eating away at real earnings. So even though Europe's going to exhibit weak growth, they've got you know some labor market challenges too. Yes, and again, it's linked to an aging demographic, um, but also things like um, licensing reform and you know at will layoffs like it's very difficult to let people go it's very difficult to generate churn in the labor market in europe because you have all these restrictions on who you can hire who you can let go to make companies more dynamic and so that's just layered on to the issues with you know a rapidly aging population okay let's go back to the u.s fed and we'll finish off with that subject uh, you've talked about a couple more possible in rate increases, roughly 25 basis points. What are they looking at, though, to make those decisions? Sure. Well, the Fed looks at all the data, and they especially like to look at ours um, because we have great data. But ahead of next week's meeting, and even for um, the June meeting, they're going to be looking very closely at inflation. So this Friday, we will receive an update on an important measure of consumer inflation. The CPI has already told us that core inflation is sticky. If we continue, if we see that also in the personal consumption expenditure deflator, um, which is the measure the Fed looks at when it's creating policy, then that's going to be important. That's going to be paramount. But I think the Fed is also looking at bank lending to consumers and businesses, and that data comes out every day. And certainly with the banking crisis, we're seeing that lending come off. And that's a form of e of tightening also. So the Fed may not need to do much more if the banking crisis is already doing some of the work for it. So if you, if you tried to convert the effect of the tightening in the uh, liquidity tightening because of banks lending less. It's about 25 basis points. It would be the equivalent of a discount point. Of raise, a hike of, in, of a in hike. the Fed fund so, rate. So essentially then, um, they're probably thinking, okay, we've got 25 basis points worth of effect in there already, so you're back to your 25 basis points, aren't you? Probably. 
Right. So I, they're not they're not looking at 50 basis yeah. points and they weren't even before the banking crisis. Um, well, I mean, actually, that's not true. They were thinking about for the March meeting, maybe hiking by 50 basis points um, because inflation was just so outsized. But they had been signaling in their summary of economic projections, you know, going back to 25 and staying there. Um, and I think that's that's probably the case. With the bank tightening, if anything, that might reduce the two hikes to one. That's what we're looking at. And so that's why I think the Fed's going to be looking very closely at inflation data and bank lending. Anything else you want to share with us? I think the key thing is, and everyone should look out for, is very soon in the next week or so, we're going to be releasing our CEO confidence measure for the second quarter. And that's where we interview the business council, which are CEOs of the world's largest companies. And the key thing that we've been learning throughout the last year is that, yes, they expect that there will be a recession in the US, but it'll be short and shallow. Meanwhile, they're still planning to hire people or at least hoard labor, and they're still planning to raise wages. So we'll be looking at all of those measures as, as well as what they're planning to do in terms of investments. We'll be looking all, at all of that when we get that release in the next week or so. So stay tuned and check out the conference board's website, tcb.org for the daily news and updates. It, uh, it's been great talking to you, Dana. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. And thanks to all of you for listening in to CEO Perspectives. Every week I'll be joined by a prominent thought leader to provide insights on the issues of our time. We'll cover leading topics in economics, geopolitics, public policy, and more. Please share CEO Perspectives with all of your colleagues, with your friends, with your relatives. I know they're going to want to listen. I'm Steve Odlin, and this series has been brought to you by the Conference Board. You have been listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board.